Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, public health emergency. As the world responds to Zika virus, one expert explains why outbreaks like this may become the new normal. Plus, battling opioid addiction, the new billion-dollar initiative from the Obama administration. And will help explain why young women may want to add some more fiber into their diets. Hello, and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. And topping your news this week, Noah, the World Health Organization has declared a public health emergency as it works to contain the growing Zika virus outbreak. Amy, that declaration will help the WHO marshal resources and funding to fight the virus. This week, Florida's governor also declared a state of emergency as that state confirms nine cases of Zika. The virus, of course, has been linked to a birth defect known as microcephaly, and there is currently active transmission in more than two dozen countries, with Brazil being the epicenter of the outbreak. Zika is generally considered a mosquito-borne illness, but this week, officials in Texas reported a case where the virus was transmitted through sex. And in Brazil, health officials are now confirming a case of transmission through blood transfusion. There have been no reported cases of transmission through blood transfusions in the U.S., but as a precaution, the American Red Cross has urged prospective donors who have visited Zika outbreak zones to wait at least 28 days before giving blood. And Amy, this illustrates the challenge for health officials as they respond to the Zika virus, the fact that there are still many questions about the disease. We spoke about the global response with Ashish Jha, KT Lee Professor of International Health at the Harvard Chan School and Director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. Ja closely studied the response to the West African Ebola outbreak, and he says that in the wake of Ebola, Zika is an important test not just for the WHO, but for health officials around the world. Most people, I would say, uh, a month ago had not even heard of the Zika virus. Right? This is a new one that has come on board. Um, I tell people I think this is the new normal. Uh, Ebola ushered in a an era uh, because of of uh, urbanization, deforestation, climate change, and the massive globalization that has gone on. Ebola was the first, maybe not even the first, of really many uh, new viruses, new infections that we're going to be dealing with. And the broader question is, what is our global strategy in research and development? How do we get ready for developing vaccines, for offering treatments? We just have not done enough work in that space. In the wake of the Ebola outbreak, you were a vocal critic of the WHO for not sounding the alarm quickly enough. Have they sounded the alarm quickly enough about Zika virus? Yeah, so it's a great question about how does this compare to Ebola. And if you think back to the Ebola outbreak, um, you know, the, the bottom line is on March 31st, 2014, uh, MSF, Doctors Without Borders, uh, declared that the disease was out of control, it was beyond their capability of managing, and they needed help, March 31st. WHO did not declare a public health emergency until August. So we're talking about a substantial delay for a deadly virus that had that four, four and a half months uh, to spread, to take hold, and that's why one of the reasons why we see that Ebola ended up being so deadly. Now, Zika is pretty different, right? Zika is different in a couple of ways. I mean, one is it's not as deadly of a virus. Obviously, it's been implicated in this really awful birth defect, microcephaly. And, and so if that turns out to be true, of course, it reminds us that Zika is a very serious virus. It is spreading quickly. I think nobody is concerned that WHO has acted uh, too slowly. The question people are asking is, uh, are they acting too fast? Are they overreacting as a way to compensate? 
My feeling is probably not. I mean, it's it's probably reasonable to call a public health emergency. Uh, this is a disease uh, that is spreading quickly across the Americas. One can easily imagine that it could sp- uh, spread to other countries and other continents. The question now is how are we going to respond now that the public health emergency has been declared? One of the big problems, I think, with Zika is that it seemingly appeared out of nowhere. Now, obviously, you can't predict the next disease outbreak, but is there a way to maybe fill in that data gap so the global health community is more prepared? This is constantly a problem, right, where in the ideal world, you'd have five years of uh, headwake to know that a disease was coming. You'd study it really well, and then the disease would hit, and you'd know exactly what to do. turns out the world doesn't work that way. And so there are a couple of things we can do. I mean, the reason why data is so important, right, is that it lets us make smarter decisions that allow us to be much more effective. When you make decisions without evidence, when you make decisions without data, the chances that you're going to get the decisions right are much, much lower. So it's critical to have that. So how can we do something about this when we don't know what the next disease is going to be? And here, what I would say is this is the importance of investing in basic science, in basic virology, in basic knowledge uh, and building blocks, so that we have experts who, whatever the next virus is, are much more uh, capable and much more quickly able to develop vaccines, to understand disease spread, uh, to have the basic data infrastructure for epidemiology. If all of these countries had really good surveillance systems, we would be much, much uh, quicker about identifying the disease, figuring out when it was spreading, and intervening more quickly. So I think you have to make those investments now before the next epidemic hits. You know, this is a classic problem. Everybody's ready to do something in the middle of a crisis. And when the crisis is over, people forget. But actually, when the crisis is over is when we need to make investments in basic health systems, in basic data infrastructure, in basic science research, because that is when we need to get ready for the next epidemic. That was Ashish Jha talking about the global response to Zika and other disease outbreaks. We also spoke to Jha about the immediate response to the virus. He says keys at this point should be controlling the mosquito population, finding ways to protect pregnant women, and eventually developing a vaccine. President Obama is taking action this week to address two major health issues, cancer and opioid addiction. The White House is calling for nearly a billion dollars in funding for the so-called Cancer Moonshot, a new push to improve cancer research. The money will be used to develop vaccines, improve cancer detection, research immunotherapy treatments, analyze the genetic makeup of tumors, increase data sharing, and focus on cancer in children. The president is also launching a billion-dollar effort to address the growing problems of opioid abuse in the U.S., According to the Centers for Disease Control, more than 28,000 Americans died in 2014 from heroin or prescription painkiller overdoses. And Amy, the New York Times reports that half of that billion dollars in funding you mentioned will go towards expanding access to treatment. At the same time, there's also a greater push to increase training for doctors when it comes to opioid painkillers. Michael Botticelli, the director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, spoke about the importance of that strategy during a recent panel discussion hosted by the Forum at the Harvard Chan School. What we continue to call for is some level of mandatory prescriber education, that physicians get little to no training on just addiction in general, but particularly on pain prescribing. And there was a general accounting office study that estimated veterinarians actually get more training in pain prescribing than physicians do. So clearly, um, you know, and as both a person in recovery, I have my own experience with physicians who are trying to do the right thing, but uh, were 
often tried to give me pain medication, went, which is kind of antithetical to my own recovery. So, so we clearly need to do a better job at making sure that we're giving these medications to people who need them, that we're monitoring this. Botticelli says that an estimated 18 billion opioid pills were dispensed in 2012. That's enough to give every American over the age of 18 75 painkillers. The FBI is now investigating the lead-contaminated drinking water in Flint, Michigan. That water became contaminated after state officials switched the source of drinking water from Lake Huron to the Flint River. A spokesperson for the FBI says the agency will be trying to determine if any federal laws were broken during the process. And Noah, as that investigation gets underway, officials in Flint are still trying to respond to the crisis. According to the Detroit News, the mayor of Flint, Karen Weaver, is now calling for the removal of lead pipes from the homes of pregnant women and any families with children younger than six. Weaver has not said how much that will cost, but did say that the city will be looking at a combination of public and private funding. For years, the WHO has recommended that doctors in low-income countries treat cases of severe malnutrition with routine antibiotics. But Amy, new research from the Harvard Chan School says those recommendations should be reconsidered. Severe acute malnutrition affects about 34 million children around the world, and bacterial infections can cause dangerous complications, which is why antibiotics have routinely been prescribed. So to analyze this issue, Harvard Chan researchers looked at nearly 2,400 children in rural Niger. Half were prescribed antibiotics, while the other half received placebos. The results showed that an almost equal number of children were covered. We spoke about the results with the study's author, Sheila Esanaka, assistant professor in the Departments of Nutrition and Global Health and Population at the Harvard Chan School. Foregoing the routine antibiotics could help simplify and ultimately decentralize treatment. So when you need health professionals to deliver the antibiotics, the number of kids who can be treated stays small. If you can provide the same treatment in the community, using a trained community health worker, we should be able to actually start reaching larger numbers of kids at home. Isanaka adds that finding opportunities to reduce antibiotic use would be prudent given growing concerns about drug-resistant bacteria. Finally in this episode, some important dietary advice for young women and their parents. That's right, Amy. A new study out this week shows that women who eat higher amounts of fiber during adolescence and young adulthood may reduce their breast cancer risk. Harvard Chan School researchers analyzed data from more than 90,000 women and found that breast cancer risk was between 12 and 19% lower among those who eat more dietary fiber at a young age. And relatively small increases in fiber made a big difference. For each additional 10 grams of fiber intake each day, that's about one apple or two slices of whole wheat bread, a woman's breast cancer risk dropped by 13%. We spoke with the study's lead author, Mariam Farzid, a visiting scientist in the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard Chan School. She said that the greatest apparent benefit came from fruit and vegetable fiber, and that when it comes to timing, earlier is definitely better. Breast tissue is more vulnerable to carcinogenic exposure in early life. If women had high amount of fiber, they would have lower risk of breast cancer. The average recommended fiber intake for women is about 25 to 30 grams per day, and women, if they have such amount of fiber per day, they would have much lower risk of breast cancer in later life. Far as it did point out that all of us could benefit from the increasing the amount of dietary fiber we eat each day, since fiber intake is linked to a reduced risk of heart disease, diabetes, and other chronic conditions. So 
going to have an apple now. Have some whole wheat bread with uh, breakfast tomorrow. Maybe some lentils. Sounds like a plan. Lots of tasty fiber-filled options. That's all for Harvard Cham This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Montemuro. Listen to this podcast anytime by visiting our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash harvardpublichealth, or visit hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth to learn how you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher.